President Trump is uh, is zero for one on the hydroxychloroquine. When do we get the study results for injecting people with bleach? <laughs> I don't think there's. You know, you're not supposed to study anything that experts already think has been decided. Is anybody Hello and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup. My name is Jeff Spencer. I'm the vice chair of the Collier County Democratic Party, and this is the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. Thank you for clicking on. Today we have part two of our interview with Gary West. Gary worked at the CDC for 35 years. He was the deputy director of the Global AIDS Program for CDC. He was also the senior vice president in charge of research at Family Health International and he's been lecturing at UNC Chapel Hill and Duke in his retirement. A quick note, the second half of this podcast was recorded at a later date. Gary West agreed to come back on after information about the COVID models came out and the report that the CDC's interim guidelines on opening back up had been shelved by the Trump administration. Certain questions contained in the latter half of this interview are repeated from earlier in the interview, but we felt like Gary's answers provided some additional insight, so we decided to leave it in. So let's get back to the interview with Gary West. Let's go into the antibody test. You brought it up a little earlier, and I want to make sure that we cover it. So we often are using, uh, in the community, antibody tests much more often than we use antigen tests or tests directly for the agent. Because they're cheaper, they're easy to administer. Uh, some of them are really good, have really high predictive values. And like for HIV, the predictive value for the HIV test is like 99.5% or something. It's really, really high. And also, it can tell you, at least some of the, depending on what infection you're talking about, it can tell you whether someone's immune or not. That's a very important bit of information that you want to have. So in this case, the antibody test development came uh, after the antigen test, which is kind of understandable. And however, the FDA, because we're in emergency, they gave emergency authorization to a lot of antibody tests that weren't uh, well validated. And some of them uh, appear, apparently have some pretty big problems with the predictive values. And I haven't seen any accounting of this. I've just heard the stories. So it makes it less useful as a tool in the contact tracing First of all, it, it may take a week to 10 days or even longer before someone develops antibody after they get infected, where the antigen test will tend to be positive sooner in the course of infection. So antigen tests may be the best ones to use in contact tracing anyway, although we would probably, uh, we would probably try to use the antibody test as quickly as we could. One thing that antibody tests are especially good for is to get an idea of the prevalence of an infection in a community. So you can do a a random sample of households and go in and test people in those households and get a pretty good idea of how prevalent an infection is in the community. But if you use an antibody test that has poor predictive values, that's not going to be very good data. So there have been a number of reports of, uh, from California and from New York, I believe, where they have tried to make these estimates of the true prevalence. And generally, we would say, for a viral disease anyway, we would, it's a rule of thumb, if we get X number of reports, we'd probably say, well, there's probably five or 10 times as many true infections in the community. That just kind of tends to be the way it is, because a lot of people right. never get sick enough to, um, 
come to a hospital or doctor. But we really want to know what the true prevalence is and then whether this test could be used for to support the contact tracing and other uses. So in the first studies in California, they did what we call convenient sampling, which is like they use Facebook to recruit people to be tested. And I, I'm not sure exactly, and that was in uh, Santa Clara County, in uh, L.A. County, they did something similar, and they gave back tests, uh, results showing that the uh, the antibody was much more prevalent than the reported cases would show. But I think it was skewed toward uh, revealing a larger number because of the way they they had selection bias and how they selected people to participate. Right. With community uh, testing, this is a huge problem. Is selection bias is always a problem, even if you do uh, random, you try to do random testing, you're still going to get people who test, who agree to test and agree not to test. And this can throw off the estimates pretty substantially. We found it with HIV especially. In New York, they did something, I think, a little bit better, but they had some selection bias, and that I understand. And they got uh, figures of about 21 or 20 percent, a little higher in New York City, a little lower in New York State. Probably that's not too far off. It's not, it, they didn't use the best possible techniques for that, but they probably generated some pretty useful data, too, so I don't want to criticize them too much. Right now, we have a lot of states coming out of lockdowns, and I'm curious what your experience dealing with so many different infectious diseases uh, tells you that we should be looking for. What kind of criteria should be considered before a state decides to open back up? First, with the virus, you know, a virus that's seeded this well-seeded in the American population is not going to go away quickly. And, you know, you can get ups and downs with the virus, with the number of people getting infected from day to day, week to week, can happen just naturally for, for reasons that we often don't even know why it's happening. But that would be the norm. They tend not to go away once they've been introduced. Now, there is this issue of the seasonality of viruses, most of them tend to go down in the summer when it's hotter and, and more humid uh, and then go back up in the fall. So I think the epidemiologists would say, look, if the viruses are with us, if we let our guard down, it's going to come back. And maybe it will go down in the summer, maybe it won't, but then it'll come back in the fall. This is just the way it is. Influenza does this every year. Uh, coronavirus, <laughs> you know, the ones that cause the cold do it every year. Uh, so uh, at least I, I believe they're seasonal to some, to some degree. So if the state says it wants to open up, everyone wants to open up, of course. But I think that the recommendation that Debbie Burks, who, by the way, worked in the Global AIDS program, she was the director for a while after I left. Those were pretty well, I think they were probably the best they could be for that particular time. She said she had about five things that they had to have, but they had to have the a downward trend in the cases for two weeks. They had to have testing, ex expanded contact tracing started, um, and all of that needed to be placed. And when I've looked at the states, most of them don't have that. They don't have the downward trend in the, in the cases. Some do, but most of them don't. Most of them don't have that much testing going on. It would be hard for them to do it if they did. Uh, but they're opening up in a circumstance where there's some risks. Now, how bad those or how high those risks are, I can't say for sure, but I think they're probably substantial. And I think that's most of the other people who have experience in this thing, too. So we won't know until, like, Georgia started to open up a week ago. So if, if there's a resurgence in the virus, 
then we would not expect to see it for at least two weeks, right? Because it's a two-week incubation period. Uh, it could even right. take longer because it, it maybe was knocked down substantially, and it has to kind of get back up again to really be noticeable. So maybe it'd be a month from now before that it would be really easy to perceive that, that, that there's been a dramatic increase in cases. I mean, it could be right away, but more likely it would be a few weeks later. So we'll learn a lot from these shutdowns and see how much of a threat we're in. Gary, what do you think is getting covered too much and is really not all that helpful? I think they should put the, you know, the experts on TV more often. I mean, I think they're trying, uh, but a lot of political, and I guess there's, we definitely need the political discussion, but you know, whether Trump did this or did that, we kind of beat that horse quite a bit. I think we ought to just go to you know, the experts and, and try to hear directly from them as what, they're, what they know and what they're learning. But they, it, the coverage tends to be very repetitive. You know, they tend to say the same thing in all the stations and they have their experts say the same thing the other experts say or mostly. And so it's kind of hard to swallow it. A lot of information is being put out, but it's hard to it's hard. It's kind of unbearable to watch all of it all the time. But although I do watch a lot of it. What about what's getting covered too little? The first warning about this how this is going to change everyone's life. And I think that person was demoted or something after that. But she was exactly right. She said, I think in February, I, well, it might have been early March or late February, I don't remember the exact date, that this was going to you know, materially affect normal life. And I, I think that message still is still true and needs to be uh, given over and over again to people so they won't be quite so quickly to take these risks that... Uh, that we may be see happening now. Now, may, maybe if we're lucky, it won't be any big problem. I hope that's the case. But I'm pretty apprehensive that there's going to be a problem. And and, uh, and uh, hopefully this stuff about the seasonality of it is going to prove true, although there's arguments against it already. Uh, that is, it warms up and gets higher humidity, we'll see it drop down. And so that will reduce the risk somewhat, at least for a few months. But uh, that might not happen. That might not be true. There are outbreaks in Singapore, which has a very kind of moderate climate. Uh, it does seem like the countries that have really warm climates are not having epidemics at the scale that we've had in North America at the moment. But I don't know if that's related to climate. And it may just be because it, the virus is, hasn't been there as long. It may not be. Uh, right. You know, that may be all it is. A lot of stuff we don't right. know at this point. By the way, the issue on immunity, I wanted to... Just mention that quickly. Yeah. There's still an issue about whether people who yeah. have an inf get corona, get, get COVID, and they recover, are they immune? And there's uh, this phenomenon of uh, people testing positive on the, on the antigen tests, on the tests for the virus, long after they've recovered. And that's kind of worrying everyone. And so, um, so is a, the, whether you're immune technically has not been confirmed yet. I'm going to say yeah. technically, I'll come back to that. And how long yeah. and how complete the immunity is kind of open. So um, I would just say, just as a, an observer, not anyone who has any inside information, but if the infection with the virus didn't make, didn't make you immune for at least the short term, there would be big epidemics in China right now and in Italy 
in Spain and other places in New York where there's been a lot of a lot of COVID. Mm-hmm. So we're not seeing that. We are seeing people mm-hmm. who test uh, positive for weeks after they've uh, recovered. And so there may be some uh, syndrome of persistent viral infection, uh, or it could be the tests are just so inaccurate that it's picking, you know, they're false positives. Or, or they had false negatives and then there's the positives to right. Who knows what the truth is? But I, I would say that at least in the, for short-term immunity, there's pretty strong evidence out there that anyone can see so that there's got to be at least be short-term immunity. But it could really be short-term. It could be months or years, which means uh, if we get a vaccine, uh, you know, you may have to have boosters. Hopefully, hopefully it would be reasonable that at worst you'd have to have a booster every year to keep your protection up. But wow. we don't know yet. Generally speaking, what do you feel like the next six months to a year could look like? What's the best case scenario? Let's say the best case, I would say, is that states start opening up. There are some outbreaks, but they're not large. The summer is pretty quiet. It resurges in the fall, but by that time, we have drugs that help us treat severe cases, and we're well on our way to getting a vaccine. There's about 30 vaccine candidates that are being tested. It, I mean, the whole world's trying to develop a vaccine right now, and they're really good at this, so something good's going to come, but it's going to be a while. But, you know, maybe a year from now, if we're lucky, we would have a vaccine that is at least partially effective, and we can start protecting people uh, at a large scale. That's probably the best case that we have for it because it hasn't infected let's say the even the california antibody surveys were right it's only 20 30 percent of the population has been infected and that's probably not it's probably not 20 or 30 percent i heard one epidemiologist say today that's maybe five percent of the population that's been infected so you know you hear about this herd immunity which is you know, smallpox could spread quite comfortably when we had 95% immunization levels. Measles can spread in very high levels of immunization. These, these viruses, you know, people talk about 60-70%. I don't know that 60-70% of the population being immune would be enough to control this virus completely. I mean, it's pretty infectious. So, uh, so I, I think that the best case, what I'm looking for, would be this. There's no real big outbreaks following the opening up that we see over the next month. It subsides in the, in the further in the summer. I don't think there's any chance it's going to go away. Hopefully I'm wrong. Um, it comes back in the fall, but it's not terrible. We're much better prepared for it. Then the vaccine comes. People start getting immunized. The levels of people in the population who are immune, at least temporary, does go up a lot. That's probably the best case for what we can see ahead. Uh, and I hope that's right. We're going to take a quick pause and we'll be back with more with Gary West after the break. This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot this November. And we need your help. We cannot do many of the things we normally do this election year, but there are still many activities that are safe and can be done from home. 
We need volunteers to help out with things like writing postcards or making phone calls in a virtual phone bank that will help us win in November. If you have the time to help us, please go to www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. And click on the Get Involved button and become a volunteer. With your help, we can win in November. So um, why don't you go ahead and tell me a little bit about the, the models and how modeling typically works. As of recently, last week, uh, we saw the models uh, which were predicting death rates in the 60 to 70,000 range be dramatically revised uh, and pretty much double uh, what they were previously saying. Can you go into how models typically work and what you see in this dramatic of a change? Is that normal? Is it not normal? Just give us kind of an overview of what, what you're seeing now. Sure. Well, the models are basic on this concept of the basic reproductive rate, which looks at uh, how infectious an agent is, uh, how long it's infectious, how many contacts are likely to be exposed and how susceptible they are to the exposure. Those are the basic elements. But some of these models are far more sophisticated than that. They have a lot of other factors that are integrated into them. And that's especially true of these COVID uh, models that that have sprung up over the past couple of months. And they always have, you know, three estimates, a high, a low, and a medium. And they tend to take the medium estimate is the most conservative. So that the estimate for the 65,000 deaths, I think it was, was based on the model from the University of Washington. There's a center there for metric, metrics and evaluations, I recall. Dr. Murray is the, uh, the originator of it. And they, they were following, you know, the, the high, high level was a lot higher than the 65,000, more than twice, I think three times the, that number. They were following the cases and the deaths being reported, and they could see from the slope of the curve that they were going to exceed the 65,000. So they had to adjust it to allow for the reality of what was actually happening. And this is fairly common with the models. In fact, uh, the models are most predictive after the epidemic's over with. And I think this is a, a good model, probably the best of any, but it's having to be adjusted. So they they revised it and they looked at the slope of the curve and all these factors and they've come up with this 135,000 as being the, again, the conservative, the medium range. I'm not actually sure what the parameters are for this new version of it, but there's a higher and a lower, just like there was in the first one. So you say that the models are, are most accurate after the fact, which yeah. obviously hindsight's 2020 20 on everything. I'm just curious, how should the models be used then? If if they have this degree of variability and, and they're going to change, I mean, this is a dramatic change. This isn't, or at least, well, I guess you're saying it's not dramatic. To, to the layperson, I would think it would seem dramatic in the sense that it doubled. Um, and especially since we're talking about deaths, that is uh, even more stark. So how, how should one view models and then how... Do, how, how should a uh, leader or a politician or uh, an elected official utilize the model? Or is it just there as a reference to kind of give people an understanding of where we are at the moment? Yeah, I think that um, the models are useful for planners. 
you know, people who are trying to plan a response, they kind of give you an idea, given certain assumptions, where the epidemic may go. And they can then look at those assumptions over time to see if they're correct or if they change. I think when you put it in the public media, which has happened with these models, it's, tend, it, it's going to be a problem because it's going to mislead people, not by any intention, but just by the factor of the nature of the models. I think every modeler knows it's going to change. The, the big issue with the models is the variables that are in the models and how sensitive or how accurate those models are and how sensitive the, 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 those variables are to other factors in the environment. And so uh, when they start it out, they don't even know all the variables. They don't know all the things that could, might influence the model and to what degree. With HIV, we had lots of models for the HIV epidemic. None of them were very predictive. Uh, we still use them as a reference, but really the, the model that looked backwards uh, and looked at what the likely uh, incidence was of HIV in the 80s was the most telling. And by that time, they had had it down pretty well. And, and it was, you know, a useful reference to see how it had changed over time. But it never got a lot of widespread pub, pu publicity in the media like this model has, has done, which I think is kind of uh, a, a bit of an issue because it's very likely people are going to be misled, although the modelers are doing their best. They, they're, the models are going to change their predictions over time. So they're not as concrete as... Uh, you might think uh, if you're a layperson, where someone like me is kind of wondering if the model is going to be useful. And even Dr. Fauci has mentioned that he doesn't really go by the models that much because they are based on assumptions that are hard to estimate and may change. So uh, oftentimes you look at the slope of the curve, in my mind, is pretty telling. If you see whether the curve is going up sharply or going down sharply is more predictive and of course, it could, that's for the short term. The long term is still open, even with that method. I want to move on to uh, the CDC report uh, or recommendation of how to open back up that last week on Friday, it came to light that the CDC produced a 17-page report with recommendations on how to open up the economy and how states should proceed. And it was found out that the White House ended up shelving that report to quote the article. I'm curious in your experience, I mean, you've had 35 years at CDC, how unprecedented is that? And um, what's your general feeling? Well, first of all, I think it's very important that there are guidelines to guide people as they try to reopen and keep everyone safe, as, at least safe as, as, as possible during that, that time. So I think CDC was right on target in trying to come up with some guidelines. And I know the process they use is they generate guidelines for many things and their guidelines are generally very good. They not, don't just engage the CDC staff, but they engage a lot of experts outside of CDC and there's a lot of back and forth on this to get the best set of guidelines. And uh, depending on the level of importance of the guidelines and level of attention, you know, they may just be generated by CDC and there's not really a lot of outside review, but for these, and some of the guidelines during the era of HIV, the HIV pandemic, the guidelines got White House review as well. So it's not unusual that the guidelines would be reviewed by the White House and there would be comment and uh, some discussion. I can remember when the guidelines for uh, 
HIV safety in the medical environments, the, the guidelines to keep uh, medical personnel and patients safe from HIV um, infection in the, in the medical environment. There was a lot of controversy about those, and they went back and forth uh, a number of times. But I think in the end, CDC did produce some really, really good and very scientific and sound guidelines on that, and that helped guide medical practice for what, 20 years. Now, on these guidelines, I don't have any inside information from CDC. I'm sure whatever the discussions are they're having are being held tight. But I, I know what the White House has said. And they've said that officially that they did not shelve the guidelines, that they asked CDC to consider making them more easy to be understood and maybe more flexibility based on uh, locations in the United States, which have a greater or lesser problem with COVID. And uh, I think there was some editing to make them more understandable that they suggested. So what they said, they're still alive, they're just in review. And I know from my own experience, these kind of reviews do, do occur. Now, since the guidelines tend to be more uh, specific to like institutions, like nursing homes or our uh, travel, transportation. I'm not sure I understand completely this issue about why they should be more flexible for different areas. It seems to me that the guidelines would be pretty consistent in those types of settings across the country. I'm waiting to see what they actually produce. And uh, Yeah, I mean, so I was able to locate the guidelines. Yeah, there's some leaked versions uh, of it. Leaked versions. Right. And, and as you said... Um, the guidelines don't specifically mention any locale. Right. They are mentioning, for instance, it says interim guidance for child care programs, right. interim guidance for schools, interim guidance for bars and restaurants, communities of faith, etc. So like you said, it's more guidelines on how institutions or specific uh, places of business should act and how they should uh, operate. Right. As a, again, as a layperson, it sounds like you're saying that this type of thing has happened in the past with, with guidelines. It just seems like given all of the rhetoric around opening up and, for lack of a better word, misinformation uh, coming from the White House on a lot of things, to find out through a news article that there are CDC guidelines to opening up that, that come out a week after other states are opening up seems a little odd to the to the average person yeah i think that the idea that there's review and editing is not unusual and so i don't see any problem with that the reason giving for editing does seem kind of inconsistent with what the guidelines are supposed to be doing which is not really so sensitive to location as it seemed to be from the white house statement and the fact that they're they're kind of late because they're very much in the process of opening right now and how useful they, would they be? You know, if they come out next week, probably they'll be very useful, but if they delay much longer, then uh, I think there's going to be an issue about, you know, too late. Uh, I'm sorry. You'd think they'd be out there before we we're going to do this opening, which is supposed to have been really well planned. But what's unnerving about this is that the, White House issued guidelines on reopening already. They called them gateways. They had five different variables that they were supposed to look at. And most of the states are not meeting those 
five components that were already issued by the White House, but there's no been there's been no uh, move to to hold them back from reopening. So that's that's not a good precedent. Yeah, and so I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question. Because you know, here in the state of Florida, we've uh, opened back up about two weeks ago, uh, and Governor DeSantis brought out uh, a phased plan, three phase plan on how to open up. Um, but one of the things that are that we're seeing is exactly what you just mentioned uh, with opening back up, which is nearly every expert including political think tanks on both the left and the right, outline basically four major criteria to open back up, which is a declining case rate, a increase in testing that allows right. us to test rapidly and, and at scale, a uh, effective contact tracing program, and then um, hospital capacity to be able to handle any type of surge that may occur. And, as you said, we're not seeing that in a lot of states. At the very, some of these states are showing a, a reduction in cases, but the other two factors of increased testing and contact tracing are definitely not in in place in most of these places. I'm curious, how do you see that playing out? I mean, the reduction in caseloads is great, but I'm curious how you see without these other factors, what do you see happening uh, in these states? Or what do you, what would you anticipate seeing if, if given this uh, situation? Well, I'll quote from Dr. Fauci today, who commented on this and said, states need to be careful because it's possible that a new outbreak could occur in their area that uh, could be difficult to control. And that would be exactly my concern. So first of all, the, the number of cases and the number of testing or the strengths of the testing program are, are linked. And Dr. Debbie Burks talks about this a lot, about the seropositivity rates from testing and how they're, so what she would like to see is a drop in uh, reported cases and a drop in seropositivity uh, going together. You see what I mean? Because if you get a drop mm -hmm. in cases, but a high seropositive rate, that means you're, doesn't mean that it, it makes you think the case count doesn't mean that much. That there's a lot of people with the infection that you're just finding through testing and probably a testing program that really looks at people coming in with symptoms rather than a true drop in case incidents and uh, increasing or uh, 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 increasing negativity in the case in the seropositivity, which means that as you go out in the population with your testing program, you're not finding as many, you know, unknown cases. Can you explain, you're saying, is it zero positivity? No, no, but uh, she yeah. tends to use the 10% above or below 10% okay. positivity because you're going to have people coming in with the symptoms that need to be diagnosed and they're, they're going to have a high rate of positivity. But if your testing program is out there in the community, you should start testing people who maybe have symptoms, but they're not COVID, or maybe you start to test people who don't have symptoms looking for the asymptomatic cases. So those two factors kind of strengthen each other, drop in cases and a drop in positivity rates. That tends to make you, give you a better feeling that the epidemic is actually waning, that the reproductive rate is actually down from what it was at the start of the epidemic. Right. So if it, basically, if you're testing only people who have symptoms, right. then you're 
your positivity rate is going to be higher. Right. But if you get if you get the case or the tests um, up to scale, then you should be testing more people outside of the symptomatic. That's right. Uh, cases and as a result, both of the that we should see a declining right. positivity rate as well as a declining right. case. Now, Dr. Birch, is, right. she was over the HIV Global HIV Program, and I was the deputy director of the HIV AIDS Program, Global AIDS Program at CDC. She came after me, but I'm very familiar with her work with HIV. The only criticism I would say that her her thresholds are rather, you know. Uh, arbitrary in my mind. I don't know that 10% has any special value, but I think your point is look at the trend. And if it's going down, the positivity rate in the case count is going down, you probably are safer than if the case count is going up and the positivity rate is remaining high. So I would give her that. I would definitely agree with that. I'm not sure about 10% uh, is whether that's a good threshold or not, but she may know more than me. So I'll defer to her. You mentioned about um, how uh, we, we were talking about herd immunity right. and how you said that, you know, smallpox and measles are able to spread rather easily uh, in populations with 95% immunity. I'm, I'd like you to kind of expand on that a little bit because herd immunity is this, is this, for lack of a better term, panacea that's being pushed by certain people that say that, you know, we should just open back up, let everyone get infected, and then somehow we will then protect people by allowing them to get infected, which seems contradictory. I'm just curious if you can expand on that, on the herd immunity concept. Well, this goes back to this basic reproductive rate. And the reproductive rates of smallpox and measles are, and probably influenza, are higher than COVID. Although I don't think we know the true reproductive rate uh, value for COVID yet, but I do believe it's lower than those other, at least lower than smallpox and measles. Maybe it's closer to influenza than we thought originally. But so if they have a, if they, if the smallpox or measles can infect uh, for every case can affect four or five more cases or even higher than that, then even with a high level of herd immunity, you're still going to have outbreaks of those infections. And so I worked in Bangladesh where there was a very high herd immunity, mostly based on uh, a vaccination and to some extent based on people who survived smallpox. And we still had outbreaks of smallpox in that group. And we eventually worked out a what they call this ring concept to control it and uh, essentially eliminate it. We found, in fact, that the seasonality of smallpox was pretty profound. And if you could find the cases in the rainy period, you could prevent many, many cases in the dry period when the infection rate was the highest. Measles is similar. It has uh, a seasonality, has a higher rate, and it can spread in the United States where we have 90, 90 plus immunization levels, you can still get outbreaks of measles, but they tend to be occurring in the populations that were unimmunized for one reason or another. Either they were too young or they belonged to a religious group or some other group that doesn't believe in immunizations. So we've seen a lot of that uh, recently, actually, with measles. So the herd immunity, I think, is a concept that's not that well understood. And I hear people make statements on the media. I kind of wonder where they got their information, but they often talk about a 50 to 60 percent 
of the population being immune due to natural infection with the virus. Now, I don't know where they got this five to six, uh, 50 to 60 percent. I don't know of anyone authoritatively that's ever said what the level of herd immunity would be, would be needed to prevent COVID infection. And maybe we'll find out what that value is, but it could be much higher than that. It could be 70 or 80 percent for all I know. But we'll find out over time as they learn more about the infectiousness of the, of the virus. And hopefully they're right that a lower herd immunity would work. But the idea that you would just let the, the virus spread unchecked, which is happening in Sweden to some extent. You probably heard about the Swedish model. But the idea right. of having a novel virus turned loose in your population that you know can be lethal to certain groups is a big risk. We don't even know the real natural history of COVID yet. And we're finding out about new uh, problems with it, like this Kawasaki-like disease in children that just came out this week. And the incidence of uh, uh, cardiac arrest and blood clots in some of the patients and, and other general inflammatory, systemic inflammatory disease of some type, which may be an allergic response in some patients. These are you know, things that we don't completely understand yet. And I, I would want to know a lot about this virus before I would say it's okay to let it spread unchecked in the population in the hope that we would get a herd immunity. Now, uh, Sweden has, they have some controls, but they have less mitigation than most other countries. They, they have this idea that's circulating here, protect the high-risk populations and otherwise let the, it spread and with the hope that it'll rise to a level where there's so much herd immunity, it's spread would, uh, would be blocked. But they, I understand, have about four times the mortality of countries like Germany that have tried to mitigate the infection. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of mortality. Just imagine if we didn't try to mitigate it in the United States, and we had four times the mortality, that would be, that would be pretty tough to take. So uh, I would not want to do something like that without a lot more information that that would be safe. We're going to take one more quick break and we'll be right back with Gary West. We know that everyone is going through a tough time right now and many have lost their jobs or have had their pay cut because of the pandemic. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot for this November. This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Every donation to the Collier County Democratic Party supports Democratic candidates here in Collier County and helps us to educate, register, and motivate voters to get to the polls. Please go to www.collierdems.org. That's www.colliardems.org. Org, and click on the red donate button to help. We thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. I want to bring up testing again. President Trump, uh, at one of his press briefings, uh, stood beside some placards saying that the U.S. is leading the way in testing. And I'm just curious your opinion on that. I know we may very well have testing at uh, in terms of numbers higher than other countries. But I'm curious your feeling on whether the testing is where it needs to be. 
Yeah, this testing has been all garbled up, the concept of testing. And I would go along with what the reporter asked the president the other day. Why are you talking about where we are with other countries? It's not a competition. I would agree with the reporter that it's not a competition. So the testing, you know, there's different types of testing. So we have diagnostic. So everyone who's symptomatic possibly for COVID should be given a test. And uh, everyone who's a contact or likely exposed to COVID should be given a test. And then there should be surveillance to detect the, the true prevalence of COVID in the population and to identify uh, asymptomatic carriers or pre-symptomatic carriers of the virus. Those should definitely be done. And the idea that everyone would get a test if they want it, regardless of their background, I think is a pretty expensive program. So I go to the part that they say, you know, you can be negative one day and positive the next, which we've already seen in the White House this week. The idea of testing everyone in the United States, I think is not a well thought through idea at this point. The antibody test, when the antibody test, when they have one out that has got a high predictive value, a positive and high predictive value negative, and it's not expensive, then I think the antibody test, people should be able to, uh, you know, uh, their doctor should be able to test them and find out they're immune. People who want to know their immune status should be able to, to do that. They may have to, it may not be free, they may have to pay something for it. But you can understand the utility of the antibody test. If someone wants to go back to work, but is afraid about exposing people if they're immune. And now we are getting more information about immunity. It looks like you get at least short-term immunity, if not long-term, from infection with the virus. That would be a useful thing to roll out more. The antibody tests that have been out there so far tend to have problems with their predictive values. And uh, so it's hard to interpret the results of them. There is a new test just licensed. And it seems like there's a new testing system licensed almost every, uh, every day. But this one is claimed to have a much better, uh, much better predictive values. But until it's uh, thoroughly vetted, I wouldn't want to push it too far. But uh, we should also talk about contact testing, just uh, contact tracing, just to... Uh, yeah, I want to I go into the contact tracing because, you know, that's one of the core principles of any of these reopen plans. And it's, it's as that there's an active or a uh, proactive contact tracing program. What would that look like in a state? Well, I think that uh, my wife and I wrote an article on what we call for HIV partner uh, notification, which we published back in the 90s, which outlined a lot of the concepts for HIV. But a lot of it's relevant to, to this too. But there definitely needs to be contact tracing. So you start off like with the testing. You first, for everyone who's diagnosed, you want to uh, immediately contact their, their, their family members, their wife, their children, their close friends, anyone who's been, any people who have been in close contact with them during the period in which they might either have transmitted the virus or might have then uh, had the virus transmitted to them. And then you can get to them and you can isolate them. And maybe someday we'll have uh, some drugs or a vaccine we can give them to abort the infection or treat the infections if they're already infected. Now, when you go past that group, it gets kind of complicated because uh, you can theoretically just walk by people or be in a, a crowded room with people and expose them to COVID. And I can't imagine any contact tracing program that would be staffed up to a point where they can follow all these people. Now, in Vietnam, where my, I have many friends, they're doing this right now. And they have a very active contact tracing program. 
but they know how to do it. They're really quite competent at it. But they run into problems like, you know, the person, they find the family, they find the friends, they find uh, maybe the neighbors, other people that are, can be readily identified that could have been transmitting the virus or could have been exposed. But then they find out the person with the flower market and they went to the grocery store and all this other stuff. And there's a study out of South Korea that shows that you can transmit in those settings. Uh, they've showed that pretty clearly. So what do you, how do you reach people in that? And they're somewhat stymied, but they are considering putting out notices or alerts to the public that if you were in the flower market during a, a certain period of time, we know there were COVID people with COVID in the market at that time, you could have been exposed. So you should isolate, but that could be a lot of people to isolate. You know, I, I don't know how well that would actually work. So I think you have to kind of work it out from working with the diagnosed person diagnosed with COVID to their family, their friends, their close associates, anyone who can, you can identify like a small, a small shop. Maybe they were in a small shop. You could actually contact people who work in the shop. Those things that are, are kind of reasonable that you could contact. But I think it, the number of people you'd have to reach would balloon so quickly that I can't imagine a contact tracing program that could reach all of them without costing a fortune and wasting a lot of time. But certainly within the priorities that I mentioned, there should be contact tracing and it would be a big mistake not to, uh, not to do it. Because you can go from a, a child who was infected to a person at very high risk in just one generation of cases and you might be able to save that person's life. So far too often there's this argument that's made that because we can't do it as well or we can't do all of it, then we shouldn't do any of it. But it sounds like you're saying that even if we did the first you know, line of friends, family, close acquaintances, that would provide some help and some assistance in, in keeping down yeah, the it infection would, It would rate, contribute right? to keeping it down. You would prevent cases through that uh, method, but you can't prevent all transmission through it. So you have to see all of these mitigation activities leading to mitigate to a larger level of mitigation. So all the social distancing, the mask wearing, all of this stuff contributes and you get enough things going that contribute significantly. Eventually the overall effect will be much larger and you'll get that reproductive rate way down, but you're still going to have, you're still going to have outbreaks. I think Dr. Fauci has mentioned that this virus is uh, transmitted very efficiently maybe not as, as much as smallpox and measles or even influenza, but it, it, it's a, a formidable foe. And even with all this, there's going to be some outbreaks and we need a drug that would uh, treat the severe cases, hopefully a drug that like a monoclonal antibody or convalescent serum in a fairly soon that uh, would give you short-term immunity to, to the, help you with a current infection, but also potentially give you short-term immunity until we get better drugs and vaccines out. So uh, those things, we, we're gonna need the help of those types of tools. Before I forget, lastly, I want to ask you about you and some of your colleagues oh, yeah. submitted an article outlining the lessons learned from your years studying and working on HIV and AIDS and what uh, what you learned and how it can be applied to the coronavirus. Uh, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to to talk about that and let us know what did you learn from the HIV that can be applied to well, the coronavirus. This, this article I was mentioning is actually to Health Affairs and it's a blog. So in Health Affairs, it just means it's a short article. 
I think a couple of things that are definitely relevant that we did in HIV that is not being done now, and that is the national leadership that was going on in HIV. And I was the deputy director of the global of the, of the national program, working with a colleague of mine who was, they, they gave us different names, but I was in a sense the, the deputy person at CDC who, who organized and monitored and managed the national response to HIV. My boss there was Dr. Ron Valdeseri, who's the lead author for the health affairs article. But one of the things that I remember we talked about, but didn't, I don't think it got into the article, is that we managed, the, we, we uh, supported the states very strategically and systematically. We conducted trainings. We brought them together to discuss the issues. We uh, helped them get supplies. We help negotiate uh, what we call public health contracts for things so they could get good prices to buy things. But there was a lot of effort, not out of the White House, but out of uh, CDC and other federal agencies. The states were still in charge, but they had a lot of support. But they, they did a really good job and they some were a little slow to start, and, but there were some really ahead too. Some of the ones that are ahead with COVID today were ahead with HIV. So there's kind of interesting uh, pattern there. So I don't see that really going on, or maybe it's going on uh, behind the scenes. It doesn't get a lot of publicity. Hopefully that's true. But my colleague, Dr. Valdeseri, wrote an article before that that talked about how the state and their infrastructure, their staffing, their, their operations were severely affected during the financial crisis back in the, back 10 years ago. And they really, that a lot of that was not restored to them after the financial crisis was over. So they, they have a diminished infrastructure that now is they're trying to strengthen to fight COVID. Uh, and I hope that more attention will be paid to that. I do want to ask you, you brought up the CDC budget cuts because that's something that I've written about here recently on our, on our website to talk about some of the, the different ways that government and uh, both na- in nationally specifically with CDC has kind of continuously looked to cut. And I know the Trump administration was pretty draconian with their, with their recommended budget cuts to CDC over the, the first three years, including removing the pandemic response team uh, that President Obama put in place, et cetera. In your experience, has CDC sent, seen that type of budget cuts? I mean, is that something that's constantly going on with, with legislatures that they're they're looking to cut things out of the out of the CDC's budget, or is this a more recent phenomenon, like you said, that that stemmed out of uh, the financial crisis, and as our tax revenues are kind of getting squeezed, that they're continually looking for places to to pull money well, they, out of? Well, over the years, CDC's budget has pretty steadily increased. I think that, uh, and I don't know the, the the quantitative cuts that they've got, but I've heard that they did get quite a bit over the past ten years. And I don't know how much of that's been restored. I think some has. So it's been, I think there have been budget cuts over the years before, but my impression is that the budget cuts more recently were more deep than, um, than those in the past have been. But um, they're going to need a lot of people to, to fight COVID. You, there was recently this uh, hydroxychloroquine study, chloroquine study uh, that came out that, uh, that I think you have some uh, insight on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, a drug that's been used for lupus and other conditions for many years, 
President Trump somehow got the idea that this drug might be useful for uh, treating COVID. And uh, there had been some small studies that had some anecdotal results indicating that this drug may have antiviral properties and could possibly help patients who are sick with COVID. There are quite a few people who didn't agree with this, thought that, that it, the evidence wasn't compelling and that there were some side effects of hydroxychloroquine that people should avoid if, let's say, it's indicated for some other condition. And uh, there was a, a study that FDA picked up a couple weeks ago, and they issued a, a warning of uh, potential side effects with the drug and that should only be used for patients who are diagnosed with COVID. And this study was just released by the Journal of the Medical Association uh, last week on a study in New York State of about 1,400 patients, I believe, with uh, moderate or severe COVID-19. And uh, the findings of the study showed that there was no benefit to the patients in terms of making uh, mitigating the illness or shortening their hospital stay or anything like that. There was no benefit to the hydroxychloroquine or the hydroxychloroquine uh, coupled in combination with azithromycin. There was no benefit. They didn't pick up uh, the side effects of cardiac arrhythmia, which has been noted in other studies. And I think that was the basis for the FDA alert uh, a few weeks ago. But they did find in their study uh, an increased incidence of cardiac arrest for the patients who were taking this drug compared to those who were not taking it. And also uh, that association was true whether the drug was given by itself or in combination with azithromycin and whether or not they had specific risk, risk factors. It didn't seem to make any difference. So that's probably uh, the kind of uh, end for this drug in terms of uh, indication for COVID treatment. And my colleague, uh, Dr. David Hopray, was the lead researcher on this. He's also a co-author on the publication that we submitted to the Health Affairs blog uh, during this week. And he was also a colleague from CDC. We all worked together years ago at CDC. So it's, it looks like uh, President Trump is, uh, is 0 for 1 on the hydroxychloroquine. When do we get the study results for injecting people with bleach? I don't think there's, you know, you're not supposed to study anything that experts already think has been decided. Okay. So I don't think there'll be any bleach studies. And hopefully uh, President Trump said he had a hunch that hydroxychloroquine would work. Best not to have hunches on drugs. All right. Well, sure. Gary, hey, I really appreciate you uh, agreeing to come back on. It's always great. And I'm sure as this thing continues, I'll, I will be reaching out to you again to get your opinion on things as Sounds they. Great. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Gary. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. So that's our show. I want to thank everybody for clicking on. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more information about the local party at our website, www.callyourdems.org. And hope everyone stays safe out there. Until next time, so long.